Hello friends and comrades, Rob here in the shadow of Rockford Tower and behind enemy lines, engaged in an audio propaganda war with the Delaware Way elites. Carl is producing remotely, but we still own all the means of production to deliver to you the Highlands Bunker podcast. Uh, my guest today is Judge Leo E. Strine Jr. Judge Strine served on the Delaware Court of Chancery from 1998 until 2014 and served uh, the final three years as Chancellor of the Court. Uh, he was also the Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court for five years before retiring from the bench in October 2019. I am very pleased to introduce uh, Judge Leo Shrine. Thanks for taking the time. Good to be with you. I think we met in passing one time years ago. You, you wouldn't remember, but I attended a talk uh, by Brian Stevenson at the Queen that Gemma and Jack Buckley sponsored from the, from the bookshop. Were you at that? I think I might have just seen you in passing and said, "Oh, that I'm was, sure uh, I was." And I, yeah. I miss Gemma and Jack's bookstore. I was uh, my parents and I and family were all loyal customers, and it's a real loss to our our city that that, that we don't have a bookstore. And yeah, and Brian I, I, Stevenson is. I think too many, too few people in Delaware know that he's a Delaware native, and what an amazing person he is, and his brother as well, and the story. Yeah, I remember it was before I, I mean, I knew the work he was doing, but I didn't know the story of the, when the book came out was why we were there. And, you know, seeing him tell it in person to 50 people, uh, my parents were actually there too. It was incredibly uh, poignant and, uh, and moving, actually, hearing him tell it. His father, and it relates to where we are as a state today, I believe his father did not get to go to high school. His father commuted from Sussex County, I believe, to work in the food plant in Dover, but when Brian and his siblings grew up, there really was no high school uh, close by for black kids to go in Sussex County. And, you know, he grew up in Sussex County, Delaware, in a community that was really created almost as a defensive town to protect the black community against the Klan um, in, during the Reconstruction period after the Civil War. One of the things a lot of us in Delaware forget is because we were a union state, we forget that our slaves were actually freed uh, as among the last who were freed. Because we were a union state, we weren't subject to the Emancipation Proclamation. And so Delaware has always had this sort of forgettingness by cloaking itself in the union garb while having many of the worst attributes of a slave state and a, a fiercely Jim Crow state. Yeah, I, I, I remember that he had a lot of stories about that area and, and you know, and it's still in people's memory. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of the problems we're having um, just about history and, you know, statues and, and heritage is that people don't really know it. As you said, I, I think just hearing that, people would be surprised to hear it, but it's absolutely a fact, uh, and it came into the 20th century um, like that. It's... No, I think a lot of, uh, unfortunately, like our Chief Justice of the United States did when he struck down the Voting Rights Act, had a sort of attitude, you know, 
haven't we been trying to sort of get over this since the 1960s and isn't it about time we just declared it all over? When people forget that since 1619, when black people were brought here, they were subjected to, you know, 400 and some years of discrimination. Uh, and you can't just get over it overnight, particularly when our efforts to try to get over it have been so incomplete. But there are a lot of folks, as we know, who for, you know, you, you know the history you know, and it creates difficulty for people understanding why we need to do something, particularly because we have made some progress, as you know, and there are very successful black people. And people see that and they say, well, why isn't that so for everyone? And that's where understanding history and the effects it have on people is so important in terms of building understanding. And we're not very strong at that right now in our nation. Yeah, and I can tell you that I, I have a few theories about why that is. Um, I think we're going to talk about some of them uh, because there's a connection between um, those issues and the first big one. Um, I think of all the obstacles to change um, politically and locally, I, I think the two of them that stand out the most are the first one um, is codified into law is a set of rules that create what E.I. E. DuPont dreamed of, uh, an employer's paradise. But we go even further than that. You know, you don't have to hire anybody to take advantage of an LLC, uh, maybe a special agent, but you don't create jobs. Um, we, we create the court to settle your disputes under uh, sort of different sets of rules. Um, we treat public-private partnerships as like a sacrosanct sort of sort of Bible verse, but as we see time and again, it's just a easy bureaucratic way to pass uh, public goods into private hands. Um, so that's the first part, and that's, I, I guess I, I want an explanation from you because everybody talks about it. How would you describe the theory behind a chance, the Chancery Court? Yeah, no, see, I see, I think that the Chancery Court, the history of the Chancery Court is really an, something we inherited from the British tradition. We had, in England, there were the courts of law, and they dealt with very specific things, very particular things, contracts, criminal law, others. The courts of equity or chancery emerged when the law was harsh and didn't create a sensible outcome. You could go, and it was a way of getting relief from the harshness of law. It was also where injunctions were, were gotten, where if somebody, you know, we, you're familiar with the term tragedy of the commons, right, where we share things where people could adjudicate peaceably their boundary disputes, things like that. So when Delaware became a part of our nation, the, the Court of Chancery was actually created and given all the jurisdiction we had in England. So what happened, in, and different than in a jury case, the judges actually have to write their decisions. Why the Court of Chancery became famous in corporate cases was that an aspect of equity was fiduciary relations, like a person who's a trustee uh, under a trust or an executor. And when corporations came, directors, because they were running a company and there were stockholders, 
and other people's money was at stake were seen as fiduciaries because the judges had to write decisions and because there was a principles in equity of making sure that people who controlled other people's property didn't take it for themselves, the court of chancery became a big institution in corporate law. But the most famous case your listeners would know about from the court of chancery really had nothing to do with corporate law. The court of chancery, then Chancellor Sykes, who's, who was the father of my good friend and successor as Chief Justice, uh, Chief Justice Sykes, was the only judge in the cases that eventually became Brown versus Board of Education of the U.S. Supreme Court, who actually ruled for the black plaintiffs. And it, that case went to the Court of Chancery. And then Chancellor Sykes said, I can't overrule what was known as the separate but equal doctrine. I would if I could, but I know what's equal and what we're, the schools we're sending black kids to are not equal. And he ordered the admission of a black student into the school system. He also issued the ruling from Chancery desegregating the University of Delaware. And another member of uh, the court who became Chancellor Marvel actually um, entered in order desegregating the Wilmington, the cafes at the Wilmington Parking Authority, and it became an iconic decision about state action. So one of the things people forget about Chancery is its history is not just about dealing with business cases and protecting people and you know's rights in that context but actually of dealing with cases like desegregation and the bulk of chancery's docket in terms of numbers is actually overseeing guardianships of vulnerable people and the court staff spends an awful lot of time on making sure that people who are elderly and disabled and have a guardian that the guardians are faithful to their interests. So that's the tradition of chancery. It's a court of equity. We're one of the few states that still have it. Whenever you get a decision in chancery, the judge explains the reasons, and it is a nationally and actually internationally known institution. I just want to say that Delaware, if you are an investor and you want your investment protected, if you want directors held to a high fiduciary standard, Delaware actually does that better than any other state. You know the term liberal? It's not as common now. And you know why it's not common? Because people were afraid of Ronald Reagan and didn't want to be called a liberal. I was never afraid of being called a liberal. I would not, and I will say some very strong things about where our state can do better, but I don't want anybody to make the people who come before it isn't the best in the nation it really is and 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 we we can talk about you mentioned LLCs. talk about some of that stuff that is not delaware's bread and butter all the time you may not like them what i mean is you may not like what every delaware corporation does but you know about them because the they're most of them are large multinational corporations that's really the heart of what we do in delaware they're subject to public disclosure and no court system and no corporate law actually holds corporate managers more accountable than Delaware. Um, and so there are problems, and we should talk about them. Um, but I would argue that we actually bear a lot more responsibility in Delaware for things we've created in our own backyard around things like race and inequality and where the real eyeball test is in 
things like education and criminal justice right at home than about our role in the larger world. Yeah, I, I guess my my quibble with it, and then we can move towards, because I, I, I read your paper, um, and I think the things that you lay out in it are make a lot of sense to me. Actually, I marked a couple of them because they were sort of Bernie Sanders type of social democratic changes. Um, but I guess the idea just... So and by the way, my heroes, that's, as you may have read, if you've Googled me or whatever, one of the things I've defended is when people would call Bernie Sanders a communist, I took umbrage about that because the social democratic tradition in the European Union is one I admire. George Orwell was one of my heroes. And frankly, the New Deal comes out of that same tradition and built on it. And you, again, we talked about history and being an ignoramus. If you rule out the social democracies as part of the market-based economy, the, the capitalist economy, you're ruling out many of the most productive economies in the world. And, and so I'm actually, I have never, I've always looked to our friends in Europe and throughout the OECD who've actually, in, in a lot of ways, more fully realized, as you know, the New Deal uh, for inspiration. And, and I think it's a real problem in our society that, unfortunately, some people continue to use labels and to call someone like, like Senator Sanders a communist when he's, frankly, in a long-established tradition of making market economies work in a fair way for everybody. As the pandemic has grown, my hairstyle has grown more and more like Bernie's. As you can see, and, and no one else uh, will be able to see, I'm actually wearing a, a, on this because I don't want anybody to see what's under here because it's not, uh, it's not pleasant. So luckily, this is going to be audio only. We, we needn't worry. Um, yeah, I, I guess just the last thought on the Chancery Court, um, and, and you explained it obviously beautifully, uh, was the idea of getting relief. Um, like... Who who has standing for relief and why, and that, that kind of that kind of moves into it kind of moves into what you what you sort of talk about in your paper of. Can I just ask you again? One thing relevant to Delaware is one case pending before Vice Chancellor Laster, who's an excellent judge on the Court of Chancery, is actually the school equity financing case, and so that's being brought by public interest groups on behalf of kids in Wilmington suing the state over whether the public financing system is racially unequal. And so the court has historically, what I'm saying, is open to civil rights payments, small litigants. Um, the court gets applications, for example, from the people who protect the elderly because a guardian has done something to them. So the court is really open to all the litigants. I'm not saying, and I want to be clear of that because one of my priorities as Chief Justice is was to expand legal services to the poor but we both know there's an unequal society which means that it's often more difficult for people who don't have means to get access to the court but the court itself takes those cases very very seriously and there are a lot of resources spent to try to level the playing field and to make sure the vulnerable get their fair day in court Okay. Yeah. Let's let's move into the paper. So um, the title is towards a fair and sustainable capitalism. It came out, I guess, uh, around the time that you, you know, retired from the bench. Uh, and I picked out one um, 
paragraph, I think, from the introduction that kind of captures it. You can tell me whether you think it does. Uh, the incentive system for the governance of American corporations has failed in recent decades to adequately, adequately encourage long-term investment, sustainable business practices, and most importantly, fair gain-sharing between shareholders and workers. That should not be so. The state of affairs exists in no small part because we have made public companies more and more responsive to the desires of the stock market as represented by institutional investors with a demand for immediate returns. This has resulted in declines in gain sharing of corporate profits with workers, a large increase in stock buybacks, skyrocketing CEO pay, and growing inequality. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think from, a, from a standpoint of to critique where capitalism has gone wrong, I think you could, it'd be hard to find a better one. I think that's about right. Um, do you ha would you have anything to sort of add to that um, sort of description? description? No, I mean, I think, I, I think one way to look at it about where we've gone is two simple arrows. One arrow going way up is the power of the stock market and institutional investors over company. And one arrow going way down in our society has been the leverage of working people in terms of their ability to negotiate over their pay and conditions of employment with the declines in unionization, the erosion of the National Labor Relations Board, the, and we have, you know, inequality, as you know, has grown throughout the, you know, capitalist world, which by the way, as we both know, includes the social democracies. If you don't include the social democracies, you don't have a market world. But inequality in the United States has grown at a much faster rate. And part of it is in the Europe, if you don't have a union, you still at a big company have to have a works council. Governments are much more protective of workers. Union rates are much, unionization is much higher. And there's been much more leverage for working people, which has meant that although inequality has grown, it's grown far less profoundly than it has in the United States. And people would say the pie is not growing fast enough. Well, we'd all like the pie to grow faster. The big issue is that the, the people at the top, the institutional investors and the senior management are eating a lot more of the pie than they would have 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, so you, uh, you talk about uh, a lot of changes. So I, the one I mentioned earlier that I, that I highlighted uh, was the establishment of a financial transaction tax. And it ju it jumped out at me because I believe this was this is the this is the plan as designed for or one of the ideas that would pay for Medicare for all uh, to to offset that cost. But I I, I I'm interested in just um, whether you want to talk about how you would how you would tax these uh, these transactions and maybe some of the other uh, solutions that you've that you targeted. One of the ways to think about it is, well, though we're in Delaware, sort of the home of tax-free shopping, in most states, as you know, there's a sales tax. And the average sales tax in the United States is often 6 to 7%. With transactions, what we're talking about here is not a big tax, not even a tax of 1%, but the idea that when you sell a security, you ought to think about it, that there ought to be a, a long-term purpose to the trade. We have things you may have heard of, of high-volume traders, you know, high-velocity traders. People who actually have algorithms, they contribute to instability in the system um, in terms of uh, making the system more prone to crises. Even people who are retirement investors get to change from fund to fund based on short-term returns. 
which actually creates bad incentives for the money managers to think long-term. And so the idea is really to have a small fractional tax so that anytime there's a securities trade, people have to think about that a little bit. It will deter speculation, promote more long-term investing. And because the people who, you know, even those of us who are 401k savers tend to be more wealthy than the average. I mean, the reality is that a shockingly small percentage of our population has any real retirement savings outside of Social Security, which is why Social Security is so remains so fundamentally important, is this is a progressive way to raise some revenue. Like a carbon tax, it, a, a carbon tax is good because we want less carbon use, right? So if you use appropriate design carbon tax, you're discouraging behavior you want and you have revenue that you can put the things you need. Discouraging speculation and increasing long-term investment makes sense. And there, it will generate a number of revenues. You mentioned Medicare for all. That's a good potential use. One of my beliefs is that it could also go into infrastructure investment to tackle climate change and create jobs for workers. But there's a lot of good uses for that. And if you think about putting that together and maybe, frankly, some capital gains reform, which would be the same sort of thing. Like one of the things, you know, you know what a long-term capital gain is? You know what the period is? Uh, it's, it's very brief, right? It's a, one it, year. It's the year. I knew it was one brief. Year. It's oxymoronic. So one of my proposals is change that to a real long-term rate, five years. You put that together with the FTT, you close the carried interest for the hedge fund managers, and you have some real revenues to make needed investments to make our economy fairer and give Americans more economic security. And so that's the basic idea. And, and, to, and it also, honestly, because the people who invest in companies would have to think a little bit more about the short and long term and give more weight to the long term, it also gives companies more um, room to focus on sustainable wealth creation and being fair to their workers and a little less about being responsive to the immediate stock market. Cool. Yeah. Before we move on, I, I want you to touch on the uh, the labor part of it because I think it's important because we we do see at least less a slower uh, inequality uh, increase. Um, Germany is a good model for this. Um, Sweden's a good model for this. But um, I also believe that things like that are a political force as well as an economic force. And I'm wondering uh, sort of if you could go into detail of some of the things that you, uh, you outline as potential incentives uh, for workers and uh, what you think um, the impact would be for those. Yeah, one of the things I would like to see, I'll talk both outside and inside corporate law, if that makes sense. Outside corporate law, I think it's absolutely essential that we restore the, the basic promise of the National Labor Relations Act, that if workers choose, and I want to say choose, if, you, if the workers voluntarily don't want a union, they shouldn't have to have one. But if you really want one and you vote one in, the employer should have to recognize and bargain within the union, with the union in a timely way. And if the employer refuses to do so, the employer should be held accountable. That was the promise of the National Labor Relations Act from the 1930s. Starting with Richard Nixon, deepening with Ronald Reagan, and, and through every Republican administration since, it basically gutted the ability of the National Labor Relations Board to function. There's a bill in Congress called the PRO Act that the, my friends in labor have put in. 
which would do a lot to restore that basic promise. That needs to be passed in some fundamentally, um, you know, uncompromised way. There might be aspects of it that can be negotiated, but the basic core of, of giving people a chance to unionize needs to be restored. A living wage. Putting a floor under all bargaining is a very useful thing. And by the way, because people of color, particularly black Americans, are much more likely to be at the low end of the wage scale, a living wage would would be a non-racial means because it would apply to all workers at that level, as you know, but would have a disproportionately beneficial impact on black Americans. And so I think labor law reform plus a living wage, and by the way, the problem with $15 is not that it's too high anywhere, it's that it's too low many places. There's no place in the United States that $15 is gonna fund a lavish lifestyle. And there are places like New York, you know, Philadelphia, frankly, our region in northern Delaware, where it's probably way too low. Yeah, they've they've done they've looked at this and 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 sort of determined. Okay, you know, a, a family of three, what the rent is. What they've determined that the, the minimum wage, just to cover whatever basic sort of checklist, is I think twenty dollars, um, because our our area is very expensive. And and you think about San Francisco. You know, the inequality that there where people, even police and teachers and other, there are homeless people with college degrees and jobs that pay $50,000 or $60,000 a year because they can't afford housing in the community where they live. So outside corporate law, I would do that labor law reform, the living wage. And again, when we talked about with infrastructure investments, things like that could profoundly create a lot of good jobs. And especially if you focus the investments in underserved communities and made sure there was racial inclusion, that could be powerful. Within corporations, I'm not sure, people don't understand, you probably do understand because you're a student of this, that co-determination, this idea in the Scandinavian nations that the workers have a voice in the enterprise, it's not just putting someone on a board. It starts at the ground floor up with works councils. And the works councils flow into having someone at the board and there's an information flow. And even if you don't have a union, you talk about these things. We don't have that infrastructure in the U.S. What I think, I'm not against co-determination, but there's a lot of questions to be answered. For example, I don't know if you know, but German companies, only the German workers vote. That's not really that woke if you think about it in 2020. Well, they take it... Yeah, because they take advantage of labor laws in the in the, in the south of the United States, uh, and those 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 workers, yeah, those workers for Volkswagen say in in Tennessee are not. Yeah. Those of us willing to say, like I am, that I'm a person of the left. We need to think about all people, right, and need to think about all workers in a fair way. One of my thoughts had been, you know, to be honest, more feasible within the U.S. would be to create, require a board committee that focuses on the workforce as a whole, that is in charge of making sure that there's fair gain sharing between the workforce and the stockholders and keeping an eye on that, that is also looking at top executive pay within the context of all the workforce so that they can keep an eye on that and, and keep it from soaring. Focus, an important thing, as we know, is on contracted labor, the people who often work at companies all the time but don't directly work for them, and to make sure that's fair. And things like Me Too, um, you know, making sure there's a harassment-free thing. To have a board-level committee that actually has to grapple with those human issues 
I think would be a very good step. And potentially, and this is a social democratic move, would be if you had that kind of committee and it's appropriately charged to allow it to experiment with having European style works councils, as long as it's not a way of getting around unionization, to have it under that structure and to give workers at even non-union companies some real say in some things in the workforce. Then if you had those things, you would start having force within the company of worker voice and you have the external benefit if you get the labor law reform and the living wage to start to tilt the system really usefully in the worker direction. So that's that's sort of my hope. Yeah, as long as long as you said at the end, as long as a as a board level sort of workers, right, as long as that has some apparatus underneath of it whether it's councils, um, and it doesn't have to be co-determination, but as long as some of their work can be driven somehow through a communication by the workers and say, actually, I don't want the board telling you what to go look for. We need a piece of, we need to say, um, to say what you should go look for, what kind of decisions are made, that type of thing. And as long as there's that apparatus, plus you have, uh, you, you make the incentives to, to, to form a union uh, easy no matter what, that doesn't preclude, uh, you know, unionizing, then, yeah, I mean, my, my only concern is... And, I, and think, I think, you know, it's interesting, as you may know, the unions, union movement is starting to get interested in this, too, because they realize that unless they give workers some ability to have a say at some companies, they may never get a foot in the door. And as you know, younger people are more interested in unions and having a say than my generation, which was sort of a generation of declining unionization. And so I think some of these experiments can also give rise to increased unionization if they're done right. So let's, let's kind of um, slide into the, the second part of this and sort of the criminal justice part and the criminal law part. Um, I always sort of make a commentary just to level set everybody because there's always a political aspect to this. Um, because our state legislature and government administrators at every level are replete with former police, um, the Speaker of the House, the chairperson of the new Police Oversight Committee, the previous Newcastle County Executive, the previous Wilmington Mayor, the Insurance Commissioner, and those are just the Democrats. So this seems like an, a very unhealthy environment in which to, to try to even speak about this. Um, but the first thing I think I want to ask you is, uh, the Police Officers' Bill of Rights. Um, there's no Teachers' Bill of Rights or Postal Workers' Bill of Rights or Nurses' Bill of Rights. So can you give us some background about what this is and um, how it comes up in uh, the criminal justice system? And that, that'll be our sort of jumping off point. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think this is a very important discussion we're about to have because it, has, it also is a discussion where I think we're going to put aside Donald J. Trump. Have to, Yes. Well, what no. I mean about this, that we're going to talk about problems that we own responsibility for in a state. And I just want to give a context. One thing you didn't mention about my background is I was policy director and counsel to the first Democratic governor in 16 years. And when I went into politics, I was president of College Democrats when I was in the University of Delaware. I worked, I volunteered on uh, Vice President Biden's then Senate re-election campaign in 84. When I got into politics in Delaware, Democrats had about 35% of everything. When Governor Carper came in in 1993, he was the first Democratic governor in 16 years. He worked hard to, and so did the vice president, but 
Governor Carper in particular worked hard to be a party leader and to try to make our state more democratic. But as a result of, frankly, that during this century, we really have had both houses of the legislature for most of the time and the governorship, can't be shifting responsibility on these state and local issues. So I just wanted to give that as a thing. And I don't, I'm not going to, I just want to say, I do not ever speak ill of anyone. And I think very highly of many, many people who try to serve our state. And I, I, and I do think we have some blind spots, but let's talk about the law enforcement off bill of rights is one of them. Right. Yeah. And I will say, and I will say this just, just, just to be clear. And I do bad mouth people sometimes, but I'm not going to do it today. But, but my point, I guess my point would be that, um, as a man of the left or ha with left proclivities, I'm not sure what I'm not sure what say the Carper Markel um, Carney regime has done any different than Mike Castle or Pete Dupont. I find their politics v I, I, like so. I guess what you said at the end is you know the 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 party get the party gained more significance, but perhaps I guess what I'm gonna I'm gonna say this is a longer discussion in terms of that, but I will say that, for example, when I worked for Governor Carper, he put in place Head Start for every four-year-old, significantly expended funding to low-income students in the schools, increased job training, increased prison work industries to rehabilitate inmates. So I think we gotta be very careful about periods of history right in terms of things but i think that's and, a fair fair point fair point. but but what i say about the law enforcement bill of rights you're absolutely right about blind spots here how does this work why do law enforcement officers need a bill of rights now the idea is officers do make difficult judgments it's a difficult job and that's also manifests itself in frankly immunities that exist when you get sued qualified immunity other things here we're talking about about whether you can discharge them. And there's this elaborate superstructure that's set up that make it very difficult for anyone to discharge a police officer. And it basically is, and, and for years, and I have good friends in the police union, I, 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 and, and, and I have family members who are police officers, I greatly respect the work they do. But yes, getting rid of an officer, extremely difficult. I had a case where I was a dissenter where uh, you know, and there was this officer who repeatedly did things in the city of Wilmington, and he never got discharged until he kept doing them. And it became so blatant that this is the guy, I believe, where someone had entered, he entered like the wrong house, went into somebody's house, and he did all kinds of things. It took forever. The other thing was a tradition of sending, we don't really use grand juries much in Delaware. If you notice, when people commit serious crimes and they get caught, they get charged really rapidly. There was this tradition of grant cases go to the grand jury when they involve police. And then somehow they never come out of the grand jury. This is where a lot of Democratic and Republican attorney generals and people around the country sent cases to die. The only cases that the prosecutors around the nation could not get out of the grand jury were cases against police. And you could look like you were investigating them, but then ascribe the failure of it to go forward to the grand jury. And in Delaware, do we have aspect? Of course we do. And we have a bloated criminal code, which is, I used to joke, and it was only half a joke that on the first day of every General Assembly, they should have to pass a bill saying, 
we hate crime so much that we readopt the criminal code. Because what they would do is duplicate crimes. Every year was a one-way ratchet to add years to sentences. People, as you know, often talk about the old days and how tough it was in the old days. The sentences in the 1940s and 50s were not nearly as long as they are in criminal codes today. And our criminal code, when we adopted it in Delaware, was based on, in the late 60s, was based on the model penal code, was a state-of-the-art document based on national thinking. It's now quintupled or more in length. The penalties have just been made harsher and harsher. We took, you know, I always ask people, could you break into a Model T at gunpoint and steal it? Was that a crime in the early 20th century? And it was, of course, armed robbery. But then we made carjacking, right? Could you, in the Middle Ages, go into somebody's house and steal stuff and leave while they're there? Was that a crime? Of course, it was called burglary. Then we created a crime called home invasion. Then we did all the career criminal things. All that stuff has been done in Delaware and more. It disproportionately affects poorer people. And because black people in Delaware are so much poorer than people in typical, it affects them even more. This has not been something external to us. And we've not done anything fundamental about it. And so we've not only, you know, I don't want to, the police often do the jobs that we ask of them. And, you know, we haven't done a very good job helping them. And we've also set in incentive systems in our criminal code, which actually deepen the cycle of poverty and that make us unsafe in the long run. And I, we need to talk about education before we go, because we, we are, we have, you know, you mentioned what's happened in our state during the last, during this century, we have resegregated our schools. And so We've also created in the system, city of Wilmington something we did not have before this century, which was predominantly minority, almost virtually high, all po high poverty um, student bases at elementary schools. And you know what teachers they get? They get the least experienced, least credentialed, least expensive teaching staff. And we've left in place the school districts that used to work for desegregation. We left them in place without desegregating anymore. And we're giving the poor kids the worst lot. And if you think about how that interacts with crime, if you get to be 12 or 13 and you're hopeless, and you're in a community where there are drug gangs and there are other things, and you want an identity and you feel like you can't make a living another way, there's a real temptation to get into it. And if we think that the murder rate in Wilmington and the fact that we almost had a, a, a show called Murder Town USA is coincidental to the fact that we've subjected black kids to an unequal education system and that we also have an irrational criminal justice system that deepens the cycle of involvement in crime and poverty. We're just crazy. And as I said, Donald Trump has nothing to do with it. That's all on us, we who are in Delaware. Yeah, I, I agree. 
I agree with that. Donald Trump has nothing to do with it. Um, and I, I also agree that the police do the job that we ask them to do. Um, you know, if, if we're going to be less transparent or we're going to treat them in a special way, you're incenting them because we want them to go out and do what they're doing. And so it's on us uh, then to point these things out and try to roll some of that back. Um, well, I and think about this. The city, you're a, you're a Wilmington city resident, right? Yes. You would agree that being a police officer, Wilmington's a tough beat in some of the communities, right? It's a difficult job. And, and there's, you know, the Wilmington police are not nearly the top paid police force in Delaware. They're paid far less than Newcastle County and, and the state. They may make less than some other people. We don't have metropolitan policing and we don't bring our resources to bear in an equal way. We actually, it's, we depend so much on the city of Wilmington for our economic vitality, but we don't actually prepare, you know, give it fair financial support. And that's one of the things we do with the police. I mean, one of the things I mentioned, to be honest, and, and people didn't like it was, why do we have, you know how many police forces we have in Delaware? It's above 40. Above 40. If you look at what happened in Camden County, New Jersey, which is by no means perfect, but they've really come a long way. And part of what they did was to create a high-quality police force for the entire county, to bring your resources to bear in a way that, that helps. And we still work in isolation with 43 different police forces. There's actually the police forces, you know, there are businesses, as you know, small businesses that don't even get appropriate police treatment because they're on the border of jurisdictional ground lines between polices. And, you know, one of the things we can't forget is that, you know, crime does disproportionately hurt people in poor communities. And so there's a real shared interest with the people in those communities. But I don't know that we've really brought those common interests together in a way that's built trust in the way we should. I do, I am, I will say, I'm not going to say anything negative about anybody. I am a big fan of our, of the mayor, and I think he's worked hard. He's not, a, no one is perfect, but I think, as you know, he came in and, and worked on those things, and that there's been, you know, attempts to really improve the relationship between the police and the community. Um, but how much further could we go if there was a more of a common culture, you know, fewer police forces but more effective ones yeah well let me let me just make a statement on that and then uh, i have a i have another question for you i don't want to you know i want to be respectful of your time um i will say this I, I i think i go back to this idea and i'm so glad you brought up the the schools because uh, a couple of friends of mine and, and they, they turned me on to some work that you've done in that area too about the districting and, and bringing resources to bear like that but the incentives um, here where I live uh, is for people to send their children to Tattnall, Tower Hill, friends. I mean, and so and so and so there's no incentive to do anything, uh, but there is an incentive to allow to, to say, you know, the police are a public service that these affluent people need. They don't need to. They don't need the school. They don't need the schools to be good. They don't need the buses to be good because they don't take the bus. Um, but I think that there's a connection between the corporate incentives that we talked about and sending the police out to, to guard private property and, and, to, and, to, and to be incented to do it in a particular way. 
That's that's the connection I would make between those two things. Yeah, but I would embrace something. I think it goes. I think that we are crazy in Delaware, and I think our business community knows it more than ever. To think that there has not been a huge economic cost to the profound racial inequality that exists in our state and that was deepened in this century by resegregation. Frankly, everybody can criticize the busing order all they want. We didn't have atrocity schools that were created where we created high poverty schools without giving them any resources to deal with it. That did not exist before this century. And it had, we had come a long way. We've now gone backwards on that. The business community, you're right, people can exempt them, but you gotta remember out my way, I grew up in Hokesson. Our schools were closed when I was a kid because the elementary schools, the kids went into the city. Now reopened North Star, Brandywine Springs. There's a new school called Cook. Those schools are predominantly white Asian. In fact, I think North Star is like 99% white Asian. They, you don't have to go to a private school out here because you know why? They have the most expensive credentialed teaching staff in all of Red Clay. And let's put on some table from the right. You mentioned police unions. What about teachers unions? I have a modest suggestion. Until you are at year 20 as an educator, you work at the school that you're needed at on the basis of educational impact. And school districts have to assign teachers and other administrative staff on the basis of need. We have an upside down allocation of public resources in our school system in Newcastle County. We take the, you would think, right, that the most experienced credential teachers at the core of the thing, I would give it seniority after year 20, but you're in that sweet spot when you hit year five to year 20, right, where you're not a rookie anymore, you still have enthusiasm and experience. Wouldn't any business send them to where they're needed most? But why is it that they're at North Star and Brandywine Springs and Cook? And then when you go into Red Clay in, in Wilmington and you look at Shortledge and the schools that have high need, high poverty, high minority populations, it's all the rookie teachers. How are we going to get good teachers to come to Newcastle County if the coming here means you have the toughest assignments and the lowest support? And the business community and the political community knows the facts. They don't want to deal with the blowback from the teachers union. Again, I have teachers in my family. I think teaching is a wonderful job. It is a hard job. But we have our priorities upside down. And so you're so right that part of what I'm talking about is lip service. We have people who've been talking lip service about equality in our state. They do things around the margins. I got to say the bail reform was real and seems to be working in a positive way. That was a real thing. But on education, there's actually a group, and I believe Senator Lockman is, um, is leading it to look at the schools, but I think the report was told to be put back well past the election so that no one really talks about the issue in the election, right? And we'll probably come out of the pandemic and be told we can't do anything. 
Well, guess what? Reallocating the teachers doesn't cost extra money. I mean, as you know from reading my paper, I believe that we ought to have full, a full-year school system, particularly for schools that are in poverty, and a full day. And we ought to have special resources for the schools in Wilmington if we're going to do what we did. And we ought to have a northern, and this is where your point about money and everything is, the richest two school districts in Delaware are basically Brandywine and Red Clay. And it's not coincidental that they're adjacent to Wilmington. There's no reason you can't create a northern Newcastle County school district that takes in Red Clay and Brandywine and all of the city that has a very um, attractive tax base and give that district special taxing authority. No one's talking about busing kids anymore into Wilmington unless they want to go. And by the way, I played a role in the charter school, Wilmington being founded. Kids begged to go to that school in Wilmington, right? Because it shows that transportation time isn't necessarily the thing. Why can't we have a Northern Newcastle County school district with real tax authority and where we do justice by the kids in the city school and then create a central Newcastle County district and a southern one? That would make sense for taxpayers and kids. But it's politically, you know, the thing about it is, is you might upset some people, right? And the question is, are we, are we to serve the public and particularly the least among us? And what I worry about a little in this moment, because I see some real positive forces for change, and you probably do, is that people will just do cosmetics. And that they'll do some tinkering around the margins, around chokeholds, and around the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights, but they fundamentally won't fix a bloated, unfair, disproportionate criminal code that is unfair to black people. They won't fix an educational system that has resegregated black kids in the city of Wilmington into high poverty schools without fair resources and is giving them the short shrift in terms of who they get as teachers and principals, and is being unfair to the staff in those schools, because as staff in those schools have challenges, and they're not being given resources to meet them. Those are the fundamental issues, eyeball tests for us in Delaware. And they have nothing to do with Donald Trump. They have everything to do with whether we actually can look poor people and black people in the eye and say that we're living up to our obligations as their fellows. And I think that we need to ask those fundamental questions of ourselves. And unless we ask them and answer them, then the cosmetics are just that. It's just an excuse to stay in office, to get through a moment, and you're not really tackling what's real. So last thought, um, and I'm glad that you uh, sort of mentioned this um, because you're talking about um, you know, sort of COVID pushing things back, and they've they've moved uh, Senator Lockman's uh, paper back till so it's sort of not politically not going to be politically discussed. So I'll give you a hypothet- hypothetical situation. We have a part-time General Assembly. The pandemic has slowed that down. Um, June thirtieth is uh, coming up here soon. Let's consider uh, that there's a letter to the legislative leadership and to the governor demanding that the General Assembly go into a special session to address, say, five specific criminal justice reform demands. And the letter hypothetically would be endorsed by the ACLU, the Urban League, school boards, and so on. 
would you consider signing that letter? I, I don't know that I would sign a letter. My views are not exactly unknown. I, I was asked, the judiciary was asked by the General Assembly to work on code reform. They then, some people said that we made it up in the judiciary. No, we didn't make it up. We were asked to serve and we were proud to serve. The bill that Senator McDowell put in that fixes the criminal code, I unabashedly support. And it should be passed. The judiciary had a really sensible bill. It just said this. You know how all the fees and fines they have hanging over inmates in the campaign? Yeah, we've we worked said, on when that. You, yeah. When you work, when you do prison labor, you get sort of 20 cents an hour. That we give you minimum wage credit, not actual dollars, but minimum wage credit to your fees and fines. It got bollocked up in some sort of dispute between the police union and other people and got amended. The bill as originally put in by the judiciary should be passed. And the, the work was done on the criminal code. There's a guy named Ferris Wharton, who's a Superior Court judge. He successfully prosecuted more murders and rape cases than any prosecutor in Delaware history. And Bill Carpenter, who was a Superior Court judge, who was Ronald Reagan's U.S. attorney, they busted their butt with other people to put this together. It's comprehensive. It's well thought out. It punishes rape and murder at, in a tough way and is more ameliorative on things like small crimes like shoplifting and others. It was the product of immense work. It can't even get an airing. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big letter signer. I'm not going to criticize anyone. I'm just saying there's obvious things we need to do. And it start, no criminal system can be fair. Criminal justice system can be fair if the criminal code itself is not fair. It affects plea bargaining. It affects sentencing. And to be honest, some folks on the left actually ducked this test. We see a lot of that. And so some of the folks, they didn't actually go to war for the real thing. They, they, they went for cosmetics. And as a result, they didn't fix anything fundamental. Same thing on the schools. Simple thing. I said, I, there's a simple bill. Where it's just go like this. You have to sign, assign staff on the basis of educational impact. And you have to take into account high concentrations of poverty and high concentrations of people who we've discriminated against, like black people. And until year 20, if you're a teacher and you want the extra money to state, by the way, we taxpayers pay, as you know, extra money for teachers' experience and credentials. If you want that extra money, then you work where you're assigned until year 20. And that doesn't cost more money. That's allocating resources in an equitable, sensible way right? That could be done. And you can't blame Donald J. Trump. And frankly, you, it's, you, it's hard to blame the minority party. Yeah. It's a question of whether well, we're going to that, do that the center of, of the plate stuff. And, and again, I have a high degree of respect and affection for many people in public office in Delaware. A lot of them are my friends for years. I'm not saying that anyone is to blame individually. We all have responsibility and we need to take it. There's a mirror test and we know when there are things that are unfair 
and we ought to do something about them. And maybe if we would all come together and stop being so afraid of doing what we need to do, we could get things done. And I, I think at this moment, when everybody's talking in such a woke way, and this is something I talk about at the national level, by the way, about corporate governance, woke talk should be met with woke action. Otherwise, it actually increases people's cynicism and will allow us to be further divided. It's time to do something real. And by the way, if you do stuff that's real, that helps all poor kids, that will actually, and creates more economic security for all working people, that also reduces the ability to, of people who are demagogues to divide us on the basis of race. Yeah. Well, I, 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 always, I always do mention that a lot of these things are clear. People make arguments for them. And usually the thing that's lacking isn't one person's expertise. It's the political will. And oh, I agree with you. It's spine. And, and I think one thing, those of us, you know, there's a lot of talk about race now. Let's be honest. White people, you know, ultimately, you know, people want to get elected. People want to get along. This requires a combination of, of white people doing what we should and also black leaders insisting on fundamental things being done, not cosmetic things. Those two things have to come together. White leaders doing the right thing on some issues that may not be a directly beneficial to them as a person, maybe not even so beneficial to their, the people in their district who may not be as predominant, you know, um, minority as in some other districts and black leaders insisting on the fundamental things like the school system being equitable and fair and the criminal code being equitable and fair, that those issues be front and center and, and that they hold white people and particularly white people who want their vote votes accountable for actually delivering on those. We know how to do it. We know yeah. basic fairness. We know that a school that has 90% of the kids in poverty needs a really experienced and well-credentialed team of teachers and administrators working. And that how it is that the school like that gets the least experienced team Whereas the school that is 99% white Asian with no kids in poverty gets the most expensive teaching staff. We know that's just basically wrong. So it doesn't, you're right. It doesn't take a rocket surgeon or a brain scientist to do that. It takes actually somebody willing to do the right thing. And maybe it's never been a safer time to be a Democrat in Delaware. So it's not either the riskiest time either for people to maybe do something, but you know, we'll see. This is in a moment. I do think that a lot of people's hearts are in the right place. And, and I think a lot of people recognize there's a need for change. And let's hope that, you know, along with that heart and mind can come some of the will to take, a, you know, some of the steps needed. And if it involves a little bit of risk, it involves a little bit of risk. And everybody who does it will be proud of themselves forever because it is nothing that we could do more important than make in our, you know, frankly, overcoming the principal stain of our state's history. Yeah. I mean, you sound, uh, 
like you have a lot of this all fleshed out. Um, so what are your political aspirations? What are we, what are we going to, when, when are we, it's, it's, I mean, it's safe to be a Democrat, right? And you could take calculated risks. You, you have, you have the plan, you have the plan laid out. Give us the good news. Give us the word. I know my, I'm going to do what I always do, which is I'll be around to help. I have no desire to run for office. I'll help anyone in my state who I can. And I'm, as you can tell, I'm still engaged in these debates and I'm writing articles. And I, I very much hope that, you know, we have that our, our beloved vice president will become our president in November and there can be a new deal for our nation and I'll help. I, I do have great respect for our governor and the mayor and, and for a lot of the folks in the general assembly and I'll do whatever I can help. But Strine is not going to run for office. And I, my wife was a division one. She was an all state, uh, all conference basketball player and, and field hockey player and played division one field hockey at a very high level. And she's not a violent person by nature, but if I were to run for office, I'm afraid that uh, a, a blonde woman I love very much might hit me with a stick. All right. Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna place blame on somebody else, I'll let you slide out of it. Um, I'll also let you slide on uh, the nice words you had to say. <laughs> no, I was I was also gonna let you slide on. Um, on, on the nice words you had to say for our mayor, but since you were so uh, generous with your time, I'm, I'm going to let that one slide too. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I do like our mayor. I do. And I, I won't, I don't have to apologize for that. Again, legitimate differences of opinion, but um, my family also has known him for a long time. And my mom uh, had a very close relation with my mom has been chairman of the riverfront development corporation for a long time. And my mom was the chair of uh First State Community Action, and she's very involved, my family, in the nonprofit community. And we, we believe the mayor has a big heart, and no one is perfect, but we do think he's a good man who is trying to do his best in a difficult situation. And, uh, but I respect other people. Have, that's what makes our, you know, one of the things that still remains about our society is people are able to have differences of opinion about things. Well, uh, so I uh, hope this was okay. I hope uh, you enjoyed it. I, I did. I mean, and... is, yeah, it was great to see you. I, I really uh, appreciate you doing this. Um, you know, we, we started a little conversation that kind of did lead to this. I'm happy. Um, I will offer to you every local person uh, who's been on based on Zoom because it's so informal um, can always come back to the studio and do one. So you have an open invitation to come okay, back. Okay, no, that's good. Stay in touch and have a good summer, okay? Will do. You You do it as well. Um, thank you again for doing it. Uh, everyone, uh, once again, Judge Leo Strine, and we'll speak to you soon. Left is best.